Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 34. After Hours with Emily Laporte. Hello everyone, it's David here. This week we have a recording between Matt and Emily Laporte as they talk about Till We Have Faces, the book which we're going to be studying next season. Enjoy! Friends, hello and welcome to another After Hour session with Pints with Jack. We have just finished up reading The Great Divorce, and we will be beginning our next book, Till We Have Faces. We thought it would be great to start this season with an interview with Emily Laporte. Emily recently finished her thesis, and one of the primary books that she leveraged was C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces which ultimately means she spent many times rereading this thing, digging into it, unpacking it. And we're going to take advantage of this interview to have her help us understand it before we go through it. So I'm excited to not only learn about her journey with C.S. Lewis, what she, but also what she learned from the book and have her help us to better understand it. So Emily, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. It's great to be here. In a little story of how this came about, it was somewhat feels a bit like Divine Providence because we were, it was over Christmas break and I went to, it's actually the first time I'd ever gone to daily mass at St. Francis de Sales. And so I'm there and run into her and her mother and her mother is close friends with some of my extended family and knows uh, the family well. And was that the first time I've actually ever met you? Yes. 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 And as usual, somehow C.S. Lewis got brought up really quickly. <laughs> yep, as and always. Do you remember how it came about? I think we might have been talking about graduation or post-graduation, something having to do with, um, oh, you know, my mom was introducing me, and this is Emily, and she's senior year at Villanova, and she mentioned my thesis, I think, because she knew your interest in C.S. Lewis, and immediately was like, oh, C.S. Lewis, until we have faces, and all of that. Good, because as I was, I couldn't remember it. I'm like, I hope I didn't just shamelessly bring up the podcast somehow. So I'm glad <laughs> it was your side that the C.S. Lewis got brought up with. Yeah, but, no, no, I think it was my mom. Yeah. And then you just spoke with an extreme amount of enthusiasm about C.S. Lewis and a deep knowledge. And you're talking about all the different books. And so we were just thinking, wow, this would be great to have you come on and to be able to talk about Till We Have Faces. So I'm, I'm not only excited because of your enthusiasm and because you have a good understanding of this, but more importantly, you and your entire family are just very incredibly devout and have a really deep relationship um, with Christ, with our Heavenly Father. And it's, it's not only a part of your life, it's a center of your life. And so it's one thing to have the intellectual side, but obviously you have the very personal relationship with Christ too. And so to be able to bring all of that together in this conversation, so you're not only intellectually talking about C.S. Lewis, but probably, I'm hoping at least, that you'll be able to connect this somewhat to your own spiritual journey or ways that it's impacted you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, the process of reading Till We Have Faces, honestly, was like, you know, in some parts of it, you see yourself. And I think a lot of times in Lewis, you just see yourself in this book or different parts of your spiritual journey. And I think this book definitely does characterize my spiritual journey a lot and definitely has influenced it. Um, but so yeah. how, how about when we, to get started here, we have you share a bit about your personal journey. Um, yeah. So I think I want to say it's really, really started in college. 
but also in high school. So you mentioned my family. So every night my family, I have six siblings, um, and every night my family has always said like a decade of the rosary together. And when I was in high school, my dad instituted this like spiritual reading for 15 minutes after a decade of the rosary. And like high school me was like, oh, you know, 15 minutes of spiritual reading. Um, and my dad <laughs> did this. Um, my dad asked me if I wanted to read this book with him. And I said, you know, yeah. And it was C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. And it was so good. It was just incredibly good. And it was, you know, Philia and Eros and um, Agape and Storge. And I remember just thinking like, wow, this man really knows like love. And he just knows a lot about the human experience. Um, and I think that was one of my very first encounters with Lewis. Um, and then in college, you know, I started, I took Honors Theology 1000 and with a priest, and it was just incredible. We read Mere Christianity, um, among other books, and that again was like, wow, like, it, this is just so profound. And it really just brought me into the faith and brought me into my own faith. Um, and then I think at the same time I was learning about my faith, I also joined this women's, Catholic women's group. And I started going to daily mass, and I started, um, you know, going to confession and adoration, and just like it was just this experience of like living out these things that I was reading about, and it was just super profound. And I think Lewis was just all throughout that, just in in so many works. I read The Great Divorce as well in my sophomore year. So I took this, um, I think it's it's like a cohort sort of thing, and because I so I went to Villanova University, it's Augustinian Catholic. And we have these um, cohort classes called Augustine and Culture Seminars, I believe. And it's so you take it your first year, first semester, second semester, and third semester. And I took the Good, True, Beautiful sequence, and we read a lot of Lewis in that. And so just, yeah, I think Lewis has just been a really big part of just my college experience, my faith experience, um, and just really brought me more into the sacraments. I mean, obviously, Lewis is not Catholic, but there's just so much that speaks to um, the faith, personal relationship with God. And then that brought me also deeper in my personal faith. And he was, for not being Catholic, being a part of the Anglican church at that time, it, it was decently sacramental in in the sense of you, you read when he talks about in mere Christianity, uh, the way the divine life is transmitted, belief, baptism, and bread, obviously a bit different meanings than maybe what we would place on them from the Catholic perspective, but that tangible matter, the sacramental side of things, transmitting the divine life. And I, I agree, really turned me on to being even more sacramental, ironically, even though he wasn't a part of the Catholic church. <laughs> Lewis's books, I think, are also very sacramental. I yes. would say they have faces. It's pretty sacramental. Yeah, it's incredible. And yeah. I, I love how you said that when you were reading f The Four Loves, you realized he understood the human experience. So my first book with him was Mere Christianity. And that is exactly what I thought when I read Mere Christianity. It wasn't necessarily, I was struggling with whether God existed or not. But when I read this, I go, what this gentleman, C.S. Lewis is describing, seems to be true, just of my own experience of life, of what I've witnessed. And I would imagine if it's true, if it's or at least if it's if it's explaining what I've experienced very well, it's got to be closer to truth. And so he was a big reason that brought me back to Christianity in a much deeper way. He just he has a gift with that. Yes, yes, he's personal, but he's also like he speaks about these truths, and then he relates it so personally. Yeah. Okay, so with till we have faces, would you say that's your favorite C.S. Lewis book, or? Yes. Yeah, okay. it's like my life-defining book. I would say it is my favorite, <laughs> like favorite book. Okay. Yeah. 
And would you say it was that you've probably read this multiple times, right? How many times have you read this? Yes. I I say 10 when I talk <laughs> about like Toya faces, but it's probably more like seven ish, but it just feels like so much when you yes. go through. But yeah, definitely more than five. Okay. And when you, when you first read it, was it your favorite book or did it become your favorite throughout time reading it? It definitely became my favorite book. Yeah. The first time I read it, it was it was confusing, but also I could tell I was reading profound truths, but I didn't like know that, you know, you like read it and you're just like, wow, I know this means something and it's so powerful, but I don't know what it means. So I need to read this again. (laughs) Uh, And then the more that you read it, the more it makes sense. So I'm on my second reading and I'm at the point you just described where I know there's (laughs) profound truths in here and I'm really loving this. And I'm seeing how it's connecting to all of his other works really beautifully but I still haven't unpacked it yet. (laughs) So hopefully you're going to be able to help with that here today. And then when I read this again, I'll get closer. I hope so. Yeah, no, there's so much. There's so much in there. So let's take a step back though. And before we get into Till We Have Faces, it was part of a bigger project, which was your thesis. So tell us a bit about your thesis. Yes. Yeah. So my thesis project was, so I just graduated college and this is my senior thesis. Um, And it was, Basically, so I could design like whatever I wrote on its typical thesis, but it's through the humanities department at Villanova, which is sort of like the Catholic studies department. Um, And it's, you know, very rigorous. And so for my thesis, I try to sort of like combine my two majors. So I'm humanities major and a neuroscience major. And so I was trying to talk about something that spoke to both like the human experience theologically, philosophically, but also um, bring in some psych research. And my thesis was, so I called it experience and experiential knowledge for understanding a theological world. And there were three parts. So I'll break those down. And the third part is basically exclusively until we have faces, um, which is the part that I'll focus on. But um, the first part was just explaining the difference between analytic knowledge and experiential knowledge, which is actually just a huge thing in Lewis. Um, You know, he talks about these things, he breaks down things. But even when he's describing his own conversion, like there was a point when like God as philosophy became God as a person. Um, God is like this experience, like prayer. It's just, you can't just read about prayer. Like you have to pray, you know? And so this, this is like pops up all over in Lewis and just this difference in knowing and understanding was super profound for me just in my own faith life. Um, like I said, you know, I was reading about the faith and learning about it, but it was also doing it and, you know, being in community and um, going receiving the sacraments and all these things that really brought me closer. Um, So the first part of my thesis was just experiential knowledge versus analytic knowledge. Um, The second part of my thesis was I claim that stories like myths, stories, um, a lot of what C.S. Lewis does is a kind of experiential knowledge. So it lets us get that kind of knowledge that you would only otherwise get through experience um, or through, yes, through actual like person to person experience in the world. So he's um, almost bridging those two. <laughs> You're yes. reading it, which seems analytical, but he's making yeah. it experiential. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I would definitely qualify that with the kinds of stories that you read. So like first person stories, like Till We Have Faces, bring you more deeper into a character's experience, right? Because you're reading from like their first person experience. And it's like, I did this, I did that. So like in Till We Have Faces, you're like brought into Orwell's experience and you see as she sees and with her blinders. Um, and you like sort of understand why she thinks the way she does. It's hard to condemn her, even though she is to be condemned. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) And throughout the story, yes. Um, Yeah. And then, 
So uh, yeah, I want to claim that stories are a kind of experiential knowledge. And then the third part of my thesis is just all talking about till we have faces. So till we have faces as a case study um, for and I well for this claim. And then also I just talk about analytic knowledge versus experiential knowledge until we have faces. So for example, um, there are these two characters, so the fox and the priest. And the priest is all about experiential knowledge of God and the gods, all about sacrifice. And um, like one of the quotes is, until we have faces to describe like the priest philosophy is basically like holy places are dark places um, and sacrifice. And, you know, words are not enough, whereas the fox goes off of Greek philosophy, um, basically. And so these two things are just put at odds, like immediately until we have faces and then just shown throughout. Um but then I also talk about like other dimensions of till we have faces, like prayer and blinders. Um, suffering is brought up in there. Basically everything is brought up <laughs> until we have faces. Um, and so, yeah, so I talk about that. But that that is the essence of my thesis. I want to unpack a little bit more that analytical versus experiential, because I find this quite intriguing. Yes. Is what's the ultimate takeaway from is one better than the other do they interplay is is like from your i almost said from your experience but from your as you unpack this is is do do you need both of them i I always think of when we talk of conversion stories of people some people converted in the head some people converted in the heart which somewhat to me seems to be like analytical versus experience but i don't know at all if that's what you are referring to with this Yes. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, um, yes, exactly. So I think when I was doing my thesis too, I really want to make clear that it's not like experiential knowledge is better than analytic knowledge or analytic knowledge is better than experiential knowledge. Like I think in our world today, we really discount experiential knowledge. It's all about like scientific, um, reason and rationality. And I mean, being a science major, I totally get that. You don't really talk about your experience <laughs> when you're talking about um, experiments and, and things that we can know in certain ways. But I also think that because experiential knowledge is so sort of discounted and not really talked about, um, I think it's that much more important to talk about it. And so that's why I focus on it so much in my thesis, because I also think, I mean, it is sort of how we know certain realities. So I do, I would say that there are certain things that we cannot know if we don't know them by experience, like God. I mean, we can know so much about God, but do we really know God if we don't, you know, pray and experience God and encounter God? Um, I also think things like pain and joy and friendship and love are things that you can only really know through experience. So like, I mean, I could tell you like also how good something tastes and like, you know, just describe this thing. But unless you taste it, you're not going to really know what I mean. Um, And the same thing is true with pain. Like someone can tell you like, oh, this experience was so painful to me Um, or just like, you know, talk about this this thing. And then unless you've encountered it yourself, you know, you might encounter the same thing or the same life event later. And then you're like, oh, that's what they meant when they said this is painful. Like it's just this different level of realization. So I think there's definitely the two going on there almost always in our own experience. But I would say that, I mean, sometimes some are, sometimes some are more important, some kinds of knowing are more important than others in certain contexts. That is very well said, because it makes me think of, in my own journey, the analytical opened the door for me to then be able to experience. Like, yes. I, was, I was the individual where I needed to through studying philosophically, uh, scientifically, from a physics perspective, whether there is a God or not a God, whether Christianity could be true. I didn't need it to be perfectly proven. And it's 
but enough where I could say, all right, now I'm open to experiencing this. I'm opening to actually engaging in prayer. And, and you are so correct that when I look, I got to be careful putting probabilities on this, but my faith, it was like the tip of an iceberg, the analytics part, and then the experience is what really took me deep into the faith. Yes. Yes. I completely relate to that. And it's like, you do have to have, so this is spoiler. Like my thesis is basically all about like these different kinds of knowing until we have faces. So like, I mean, I would argue that unless you have, like, unless you're open to experience and then have this correct analytic understanding, you can't properly experience, like you can't properly have experiential knowledge. Um, and I think that's very true of my own faith journey too. It's like, unless you really know there's a God and you know, about this God, what, how can you experience him properly? Um, and so I think you definitely need that framework as well. I think they interact so much in our own experience too. Like you think of like people who've experienced maybe just like horrific things and it's just like, they might think about God as not good or like they might, you know, take this experience and then think analytic things that might not be true, but are very understandable based on their experience or vice versa. Like sometimes I think, I mean, not to bash philosophy majors, uh, <laughs> say that I am I mean my dad is a philosophy professor so I feel like I should say that. but sometimes I mean I think sometimes people who go into philosophy it's like if you get a wrong idea in your head or just bad philosophy it just changes how you experience the world it can make you so unhappy and it just like can be pervasive and you just can't get it out of your head um and so I think that that, that too like can that analytic knowledge changes then how you experience that's a but very good point there's like a tug of war going back and forth, but that's a terrible tug of war, but there's a constant interaction going back and forth because you are correct. I, the analytic opened my mind and I started experiencing, but then you still need the analytic to help understand what you're experiencing. And I like how you gave examples of where if you don't know a lot, the experience can really give you a negative view of God, even though there is a positive way of looking at this, if you have a better understanding of the analytical framework. And so you constantly have them both going back and forth to help each other. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love it. Well, that was very helpful. So now let's jump into more of the Till We Have Faces. So before we start unpacking some of the major themes that you've pulled out on this, I'm going to put you in a tough position of attempting to summarize the story so people have a good idea of what at least in their head, is happening. So then when we talk about, you've already talked about priests and the fox and some of the main characters, they can have a bit of a framework to uh, view that through or to hear that through. Um, so I think to start out the summary, so there's three main, two main characters. There's many main characters, but the main the main character who's writing this book, um, Orwell, and she's writing this book as a complaint against the gods. And she states this in like the first page. It's like, this is my complaint against the gods for my life. My life was, you know, really hard. And she goes on and describes her life. Um, and she has a sister, Psyche. And she and her sister, Psyche, are daughters of the king in this make-believe land called Gloam. Um, this is a myth. And Psyche is beautiful, like described as like the most beautiful creature um, that, you know, people have ever seen. And Orwell is described, she's described many times by Lewis as, as ugly. Um, and that's like a major part of the book. So her identity is basically like told, you know, you are ugly and that's what she believes. But she loves Psyche. So she loves Psyche. Psyche's beautiful. Um, so I think when the story, so yeah, Orwell, Orwell grows up with Psyche. And um, she has another sister, Redival, but Redival is not as, as 
essential to the story. Um, and then they have this tutor called the Fox, who's a slave um, of her father. And the Fox is Orwell and Psyche's teacher and also sort of a father figure. And, you know, they spend all their days, Orwell the Fox and Psyche, just like spend a really long time together, a lot of Orwell's life. And then Psyche just, you know, becomes more beautiful and people start to worship her in Gloam. Like they start to, um, I think they ask her to heal them. They ask her to, you know, come and comfort them in their sickness. And people start worshiping her like she's a goddess and the actual goddess. So there's, this is like this sort of pagan like myth um, with the goddess Ungit. And Ungit is like this huge part of the story. Ungit's a god that all these people worship and people start worshiping Psyche instead of Ungit. And Psyche is basically hated then by the people because all these things happen to Gloam, like sickness and plague. And, um, and people say, people blame Psyche and basically say she has to be sacrificed. She's taking the worship away from Ungit. She's creating her, she's creating basically this identity of a goddess in herself. And, um, this is why all these bad things are happening. This is why people are getting sick. Um, and so the priest basically tells the king, Psyche has to be sacrificed. And um, Orwell is obviously devastated. The fox is devastated. Um, but Psyche is sacrificed on the mountain to the god. Um, and you know, Orwell believes she's dead. Orwell is heartbroken. And she goes to this mountain and tries to retrieve Psyche's body to give her a proper burial. And she sees Psyche there. And Psyche's alive. And she is described in the book as just like, being an extra human almost. It's like she's, it's sort of like she's become immortal, but not really. So she's more beautiful. She's more alive. Um, she's glowing. And, you know, Orwell's obviously shocked to see her. And they talk about like Psyche's experience and what has happened to her. And Psyche basically tells her, um, this God visits me on the mountain. Like he rescued me from my sacrifice. Um, and basically he comes to me every night. I can't see him, um, but I know it's a God. And Orwell is just like shocked and stunned. Psyche looks so happy. She looks so alive and well. Um, but Orwell just can't believe Psyche's story. And she says, you know, like you, she tries to, she basically tries to convince Psyche to leave the mountain, to leave this god. And she sort of goes, she wars between herself and her mind. Like Psyche looks so well and she, um, you know, her story is just so convincing but at the same time, you know, Orwell's like, this can't happen. This has to be some sort of person who's deceiving her, um, who's taking her as his wife. And he's not good. He's a brute. He's, you know, all these things. And it's sort of her jealousy talking a little bit. But that's also debatable in the story. So she doesn't see this herself. She sees like her love for Psyche is pure and she's only doing the best for her when in reality she might not be. Um, and so... Orwell basically convinces Psyche to shine a lamp on the god and look at his face um, when he comes in to visit her at night. And Psyche says, you know, I'm not going to do this. I don't I don't want to do this. He's told that's like that's not what love is, basically. Like I love him. He's told me not to do this. And then Orwell threatens Psyche with her own life, basically says, I'm gonna kill myself if you don't do this. Um and, you know, they leave the mountain, they part ways. And um, and then Orwell just waits on the mountain, waits for Psyche to do this at night. And then Psyche does do it. She hears, sort of hears this going on. She hears the voice of the god banishing Psyche. She hears Psyche crying. Um, and then the god appears to Orwell and says, um, I can't exactly remember what the god says, but he basically tells Orwell, um, 
like you, something about you have done this and, um, you know, you will, he, he definitely tells Orwell this like prophetic, you also will be psyche. And he appears to Orwell and she recognizes his presence. Like this is a real God. Um, and I have done something wrong. And then she just, she and Psyche just go their separate ways. And Orwell sort of forgets that this has ever happened. Like she feels very guilty, but this is when she tries to take on a new identity. So she wears a veil. Um, she sort of becomes this queen of Gloam as she goes back to Gloam. And she sort of tries to just forget about Psyche, forget about her past life and what she's done. Um, and she just throws herself into her work. So working for the kingdom and she's a really good ruler, but she just like hides from her own identity. Um, and so I think this is when the second part of the book comes in. Um, so this book is split into two parts, and they're very different. Um, but the first part is basically Orwell's life, and then the second part is these visions that she has and these different experiences. Um, so in the second part of the book, which I will summarize in much less detail. Um, <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> Orwell meets... Um, Orwell is like on one of these mountain expeditions as the queen and she comes across this temple and there's this new goddess there in this temple and she, you know, is this Ankit and the person in the temple says, no, this is this new goddess, Istra. And he, Orwell asks for him to tell her the story of Istra and he does. And it's basically the same exact story of Psyche and Orwell. So Psyche is Istra and he talks about the jealousy of Psyche's sister, of Istra's sister um, and how she took Istra away from the god, basically, um, how her jealousy led her, her blind love. She tried to, you know, basically hurt Istra. And Orwell is hearing all of this and thinking, this is not true. Like, I was deceived by the god. I tried to do the best for Psyche. Um, and, you know, I'm going to set the record straight, basically. And so after this person tells her the story of this goddess Istra, she thinks, so I'm going to write down my entire story. Um, everything that has happened to me in this book, which is Till We Have Faces. Um, and I'm going to like say how the gods deceived me, how I didn't know, how I was only trying to do the best for Psyche. And then the rest of the book is all these visions that she receives from the gods and just her other experiences. But she meets Psyche in these visions. Um, she sees herself in this other sort of life. Um, and that's, and she also sees the gods and she appears before the gods and they try her basically in a court and show her her life and what exactly it was. Um, and it's like, I think the most profound moments in the book are in this part. Um, but it's also somewhat confusing, <laughs> but there are like, it's just a series of visions in which she basically just comes to the answer that, uh, well, she comes to know how can they, how can we see the gods face to face until we have faces? And then she also comes to see her own blindness and her own distorted love. So <laughs> that's my attempt at a summary. <laughs> <laughs> well done. It's a very dense, long book. So that was a, a, a well done summary. <laughs> Thank you. So I, let's actually start I'm going to flip this a little bit with you ended with, we can't come face to face to God till we have faces. Yes. What does that mean? Like in, <laughs> in, in the, from the book context, but also just from a spiritual perspective, a Christian perspective, from a Lewis perspective. I think, I think a lot of, we can't see God until we have a face is like, until we can, can get through the layers of our false self, of our false desires, of our desires for ourselves that are not in line with reality, um, that are either sinful or just distorted. We can't truly encounter God 
Um, and a lot of, and when Orwell reaches the end of her life and she like reads this accusation that she has of her life to the gods, um, there's this one part that just says, like I was reading and Orwell says, I was reading this accusation over and over and over and over. And I would have kept reading it had the God not stopped me. And I think so many times in our lives, we do this. Like we, we just have this version of our lives, of our experiences. And we just tell ourselves that, you know, unconsciously or consciously. And it's like, unless we can break out of that and be open to what God is telling us in that, um, or just the true version of reality to come in and like color that experience for us, we just can't experience God because we're so caught in ourselves. Like you mentioned in this past episode, I can't remember, but in Kirbatu Sensei. And like, <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's like this, like you're turned in on yourself and you can't, you can't see God. Your face is not exposed, but it's also, you don't really have a face because you're just like living in this unreality. You just made David very happy. <laughs> that's, his, that's his favorite term. It is so profound. It really relates to this book. Yeah. Well, what you were just describing here made me think of, I want to say it was actually the ghost Pam, because she's talking about wanting to see, to meet her son. And I think that's the one that's Pam. I'm bad with names, but in the yeah. great divorce, there is the the ghost who the mother wants to see her son. And, and the spirit says, you can't until you are, he wouldn't even be able to see you. You're not substantial enough. In everything you're describing made me think of that word substantial. Like the process of the great divorce is the, are these characters essentially they were so turned within, turning out, and that process is tough because they need to align themselves with reality. And as they do that, they become more substantial and they couldn't even meet God where they are right at that point. And what I also love the great divorce does is it, it not only says that that process of becoming substantial is necessary to be able to experience God, to be in communion with him, but that's, it, it paints a picture of the role of grace in that process. And did you see that at the end of till we have faces I got the sense that there was then that it wasn't anything that she really did. She went on her life and then as she's seen this vision, the role of grace of getting her to the point of where she is able to, I guess, have the face to see God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I set up my thesis too, and this is a question that someone asked me during my defense, um, like the role of grace or like what can be done, what can help us to see. Um, yeah. And the, the way that I set up my thesis with Till We Have Faces is first we have to be open to experience. Then we have to have correct analytic knowledge of God, of reality, and then we can have correct experiential knowledge of God and of reality. And someone asked, like, how do you get openness to experience? How do you get analytic, you know, correct analytic knowledge? Like sometimes we just can't help that we don't get correct teaching. We, you know, our conscience is badly formed, you know, because of us or because of other things or other circumstances in our life. And I think that is where grace comes in. Um, you just have to have grace. Like none of us have this perfect vision of the world. None of us, I would argue maybe none of us can just, we don't live in a perfect world and we can't always just have this correct um, understanding of God, no matter, you know, if we try or not, there are experiences that we have and just things that we we know that are maybe not true or just not completely conformed with reality that mess up how we then know things later. And so I think that's really where grace comes in, like asking God, like help me to see. I mean, I think this book is just so much like, yeah, I mean, Psyche says at one point, like the God will help you to see to Orwell when she realizes Orwell can't see her other reality, her palace, her, this other life. 
And Orwell like immediately just says, no, I don't want to see, like come back to me. Just like this grasping sort of love, but it's like, you have to be open to grace. And the grace is there. I mean, Orwell just receives so much grace throughout this book that she realizes in these visions and in this other part of her life. But yeah, I would definitely say grace is like, grace is the answer to seeing. St. <laughs> Augustine uh, used to talk about, he used the word suasions, like in our spiritual journey, almost like persuasions, but God is constantly putting people, books, experiences, um, desires, emotions in us that are, are trying to, without compromising our free will, persuade us, pull him to, or pull us to him. And it, it, you read this, and like you said, you can actually see throughout her life all of the different ways that the God was trying to reach her. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. And it's like our job is to not get focused on the thing, like the actual object, and not let us not let it bring us deeper. I mean, that's like St. Augustine's whole thing, you know, with like sin and just like everything. It's just like he sees beauty, but he tries to go about it the wrong way and try to grasp and, you know, brings him into sin. But it's like, no, like you see the things around you and they're supposed to bring you into this deeper reality. And in the book, you know, you see Orwell not do this with Psyche. Like Psyche sort of becomes like her identity, her reality. Like there's, I mean, at one point she was like, I want to become like, I think she said, she says, I wanted to become a slave. So like, I wanted Psyche to be a slave so I could set her free. I wanted to be her mom. I wanted to be a boy so she would fall in love with me. Like this distorted, like so distorted love. And it's just like all for this like wrong, wrong reasons. Let's go down that path uh, of of the role of distorted love in this book. Because as you already talked about, the first C.S. Lewis book you read was for loves. We see... Love is a big part of C.S. Lewis's um, works. And then we also see in The Great Divorce these ideas of distorted loves with Pam. So talk about the differences between Psyche and uh, Orwell. How do you say her name? Orwell? I say Orwell. Yeah. Okay, Orwell. <laughs> I'm yeah. terrible with pronunciation, so I don't ever trust myself. <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah, so I think I think distorted love is like, pretty much the main theme in this book because you just see Orwell and you know we read with like her experiences and so we see like you know it's easy to see that she she loves Psyche like she really does love Psyche but it's her love that this grasping love that sort of makes it bad um and you were talking about Pam and the great divorce it's like she almost like wanted to be something for someone that she wasn't supposed to be or she didn't want them to be happy without her or it's just like this I can't think of like a good personal example of this, but I know I can relate to this in some points, but it's like, it's probably a want- good thing that you can't think of a good personal example. <laughs> Convicting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. have this all the time. I actually have lots of examples <laughs> like Pam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like this. Um, it's like, she wants to, she doesn't want Psyche to be happy in a world where Orwell can't make her happy. Um, that sort of love. And so, and her identity and her love is all tied in with Psyche. And I think just the difference in the characters of Orwell and Psyche, like Psyche is this beautiful, um, like the physical, the beauty of her soul is reflected in her spiritual, um, her spiritual beauty is reflected in her physical beauty. And I think Lewis intentionally does do this, um, that Orwell's physical lack of physical beauty um, sort of reflects the lack of beauty in her soul. And whether or not that is her fault, um, I mean, I don't want to make any claims on, but I think that that just that distorted love, like you can see it just 
wreck Orwal basically and sort of make her into this creature that can't really receive love, can't give love, and is always grasping, whereas Psyche is always giving. I mean, she's just, she's brought up to this god and she is, I mean, she loves this god, this god loves her and this like profound relationship that just like wouldn't happen if Psyche wasn't open to like true love and to loving the god, to loving other people. Um, and just, I mean, there's this part when Orwell threatens Psyche with killing herself if Psyche doesn't betray her God. And Psyche says, I can't remember this quote, but it's like, Psyche tells Orwell, you're teaching me about love that I never knew existed. It's like looking down a black hole, um, you know, and like talks about this like distortion. And it's just so like profound. It like hits you. But it's it's just very true. It's all over in Orwell. And then she's made beautiful at the end of the book and, um but that's like when she can learn to love properly. It's interesting. You said you didn't want to go down the path of whether it's her fault or not, but there's, there's, I am intrigued at some of your thoughts on it because Lewis in mere Christianity has that chapter where he discusses, he doesn't use this word. I don't believe, but somewhat that moral culpability of, of God looks at us through the lens of what we did with what we were given. So a lot of people have different experiences. Some people were born into uh, places uh, in in geographically in the globe that are much more Christian. So maybe they've gotten closer to learning truth. Some were born into families that teach it very well. Some were born where they never hear Jesus. Some were born into really broken homes that that can, as we know psychologically, have a big influence on how you turn out. And, and he talks about how God looks at what you did given what you were given. And so I'm curious, I was going through this and didn't, I almost felt bad for Orwell in the sense of, I'm, I'm like, wow, I can see how she became this way. And so I'm curious that like, from your perspective, do you believe Lewis was trying to communicate that you, you almost sympathize with her, but then at the same time, she still got the same grace to be made beautiful despite this, I guess, what was against her from the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I say that I don't want to <laughs> make any claims on Orwell because it's, it's hard to read her story because you like her, I mean, she is described as just like very ugly. She, her dad is like very mean to her. Um, and it's almost like she takes, and Psyche is just sort of like, doesn't have these same problems. She just like, you know, and she didn't do anything to deserve it or not to deserve it, but it's just her lot in life. And, um, she just doesn't have these like difficulties. And so it's almost like Orwell doesn't have this beauty, doesn't have this love and sort of like seeks after it then. So like one mindedly in, in psyche. Um, and it's almost like she was set up in her life. And I don't, you know, I don't want to think of God as setting people up to, you know, mess <laughs> up or like, um, have this distorted love. And I, I don't think that's who God is. But I also do think that just because of, you know, our circumstances in life or whatnot, we can have predispositions or just it's easier for us to fall into these different things. Um, I do think that Orwell is culpable. Even I mean, I don't want I don't want to be condemning here, but <laughs> I understand. I mean, I, you just like read the book and you just sort of feel for her. Um, but there are many points. So like there's this one point when um, she asked the God to reveal Psyche's palace to her, or she asked the God to like give her an answer. And 
there's this one scene where like she after she after she visits Psyche and Psyche tells her about her palace and her God and Orwell says, you know, I can't see it. Um, you know, I'm just sort of playing along with your reality, but I can't see your reality. And you know, they, they part ways. And then Psyche asks the God, like, can I, can I see this reality? And then she wakes up, she goes to sleep. She wakes up in the middle of the night and she sees Psyche's palace across this like stream. And then she like questions herself and she thinks like, oh, now I've seen this. And like, is this a trick of my eyes? Is this, you know, is this really, am I really seeing the palace? And then she thinks, well, if I see this, then I have to go to Psyche. I have to apologize. Psyche won't be mine. Like all these things are just in the dialogue of that book. And then the next time she sees it's gone. And it's almost like she chose what to believe and what to act on. It was sort of like, it was almost like this temptation where she could have chosen to see the palace, but she chose not to. And the gods kind of offered that to her. And you sort of see this throughout the book very subtly. It's almost like she's offered this opportunity to look at the world in a certain way. And she always chooses not to. Um, you know, like she could choose to see Psyche in her palace and all these things and uh, Psyche's other gods. She could choose to believe Psyche's version of the story. But then that would mean Orwell giving up her making Psyche happy, her life with Psyche. And so she chooses not to believe it. And uh, so I would say that she is culpable, although it's <laughs> difficult to say that given her life circumstances. Well, and I'm thinking of as you say that your thesis, which is why you use this book is the perfect example. But her analytical framework that was very much taught to her by the Fox growing up seems to be clouding the way that she can even experience the God saying she can, if she opens herself up, she can experience in that moment, what they're trying to communicate with her and see the palace. But her analytical framework is kind of fighting that because she just can't believe that this is even true. And so you, you're getting exactly what you were talking about in your thesis of that, how those need to be almost working together, but they're competing at this point. But it seems like the experience might be then chipping away at the analytical, hopefully making her at least second guess it. Yes. Yes. And I think, I honestly think it's supposed to, like, I think that's what our experience of God is supposed to do is to shatter all these things that we have believed wrongly about God, um, or believed, you know, rightly, but didn't fully understand. It's like that experience always needs to like shape our analysis, but then we need the correct analysis to understand what we are seeing. And so, yeah, it definitely is like this back and forth, but that's absolutely true in, in Orwell's case. Yes. So how about, uh, any other themes like, so we've touched on the theme of, well, we talked about the main theme of the tale. We have faces. We've talked about the distorted loves. Uh, we also talked about a bit of this openness that is, that is necessary to be able to uh, experience God. What else from here are some of the major themes, if any? Yeah, I think one major theme that really stuck out to me was just was suffering and the idea of offering it up. And I don't know how much I want to get into this because I don't know how much I can actually say about this. Uh, but it did really strike me in, cause I mean, in Catholic and I think other Christian, um, beliefs potentially, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I know like in Catholicism, we have this view of like offering it up. Like people say, unite your suffering to Jesus and, um, to Jesus sacrifice. And, and this idea, this idea of just basically dealing with suffering is in prayer and, through prayer and through offering it up. And this story really shows in the second part, in this vision that Psyche has, or in that Orwell has of Psyche, 
And she sees herself and she sees Psyche and she sees their life together. And then she sees two versions of the story. So she sees herself going through all these like tasks and the tasks of her life and all of her suffering. And then she sees Psyche and then the same like points of Orwell's life. You see Psyche's life sort of overlapping this and you see the points where Orwell sort of like took the suffering for Psyche or she like suffered for Psyche in ways that helped Psyche not to suffer. And so just this idea of like very real offering up your suffering for someone or just offering up these things in your life for someone. And she didn't know while she was going through this, like the impact that it would have on Psyche, on Psyche's life. But I just think it's like very powerful. It's sort of, I think it's Lewis really showing that our lives like really affect each other. Like we can pray, we can offer it up. And I think offering it up is sort of like a a strong form of prayer, you know, like it's offering, it's sacrifice, it's but it is essentially prayer. It's asking God. It's not, you know, I do this one thing and that automatically results in this other person, you know, not having a toothache or something like it's so much (laughs) than that. I think it's so much deeper than that. Um, It really is a form of prayer, but I think this book really shows like Lewis shows what, because I mean, Orwell went through all the suffering in her life and she sort of comes to the end and she, she gets an answer from God, from the presence of God, from God's face. Uh, But then you also see her life sort of redeemed and the ways that she like suffered on behalf of Psyche. And so I think that is super profound. Um, in this book that I read, Peter Skockel, um, he talks about this as like the way of exchange is what he calls it. And I don't know that Lewis ever called it this, but it might be present in Lewis's other writings. Um, but the way of exchange is in like this going through something on behalf of someone else um, as, as like the answer to suffering. I'd imagine he talked a lot about it in his Inklings group because Charles Williams, one of the lesser known Inklings wrote a book and I'm not going to remember what it's called, but I think it was like substitutionary love, but it was very much this idea that you were talking about. And so I'd imagine if they were close, they're doing these Inklings and he's writing this book, there's lots of conversations that were happening among them over a few pints. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I could believe that. So, there's probably so much more we could unpack in here and this will be fantastic for readers to be able to get a good understanding of the different parts of it. So now I want to transition and ask you, so you've gone through this. This was part of your thesis. We've heard about your journey. How has this transformed the way you think about your own spiritual journey or your own relationship with God? Uh, and if, it, if it has. Yes. Yeah. I would say it definitely has. Um, and I think I still don't understand the full impact of what this book has done. Um, it's so profound and I'm so drawn to it and I keep reading it. And it's almost like, why do I keep reading this? But it's so captivating. Um, I think one of the major things is I think whenever we think that we're right in our relationship with God or we think like, you know, God is unfair or like anything like that, that's just sort of like a cause for pause. And to really reflect on like, am I seeing clearly? And I think this book has really shown me that a lot of times we might not be seeing clearly. Um, A lot of times I might be perceiving things in my life or just events in my life that aren't what they really are. And if I was, you know, praying and in a relationship with God for me going to confession, um, that like clears your vision and your spiritual vision and also like makes you better able, you know, through grace and all that to, to change your behavior. But I also do think that, I just think that this book has really made me think more about seeing clearly and trying to encounter God, um, in the most pure way possible, you know, with a face, um, (laughs) 
And <laughs> I think that's like the major thing. I think also just this idea of suffering has been um, like what we do with suffering is just like incredibly beautiful because just like in the little things in life, but also just in, in like almost, I feel like in almost any aspect of my life, like, you know, difficult things or um, just like anything, just the impact that we can have on, on other people's lives and the people that are close to us that we care about um, when we can pray, but we can also offer things up. I think that idea was super beautiful and just something that, you know, I want to do like more pray for people, offer, offer up things in my life. Um, I think, wow, there's so many things. I think just like the experience of reading this book and it's just like so beautiful. Like, I think it just, it makes me see God more and understand God more by just like the beauty of the book. Like, it's just so captivating. It takes you in and it's like, wow. <laughs> um, I don't know how else to describe it other than that, but yeah, I think there's so many things. It's, it's, it is amazing. Every Lewis book that I have read there's usually one or two things that really stick with me. And I like that you with this one labeled it as it asks you, are you seeing this properly? In what ways are you used the term earlier, false self? In which way is those experiences, your false self, maybe distorting that view? For The Great Divorce, when I left that book, I always ask myself, what things am I holding on to that would that what part of earth am I not willing to let go that might prevent me from saying yes completely to heaven? Like that would be my big takeaway from that book. And so I love how Lewis just has those punches from his books. He does. Yes. Yes. So with this, how would you, what would you say are out of all the different C.S. Lewis books you've read with the Till We Have Faces, how do you say this fits into or relates to some of the other books? Like, what are the main works that this is very similar to or that themes that Lewis has pulled from? Because David and I are very big in pointing out the different themes from like the great divorce to mere Christianity to what you see in screw tape letters. And I'm curious how you see this connecting to his other works. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to say screw tape letters and the great divorce, I think are two big ones. Um, I think screw tape letters is in just like the ways that I want to say just like this idea of false love and distorted love. So like the four loves obviously gives this perspective of love and like how love can go wrong. And I think that plays itself out really well in the great divorce. Um, I think both of those really play into like when we see distorted love until we have faces. Um, I think another big one that I used in, in my thesis and understanding this was meditation in a tool shed. Um, and this is from God in the dock, but it's like, it's basically like analytic knowledge versus experiential knowledge. So Lewis calls this like seeing along a beam of light uh, versus looking at a beam of light and looking at a beam of light would be like analytic knowledge, like looking at this one thing and analyzing it and looking along a beam of light and seeing other things by it is his sort of like analog of experiential knowledge. So I think that like really plays into this. Um, I would say I can't, I mean, I'm sure Mr. Mere Christianity relates I can't think of exactly how. <laughs> well, mere Christianity, that's the one where I find with that, it's that's actually got little pieces of all the other stuff. Like it's not there's not like one takeaway from mere Christianity. Although, you know what, if I were to to say, it would be when I finished mere Christianity, that whole idea of going from the natural life to the divine life, as we call in the Catholic faith, deification, divinization. And you somewhat see that here of when you described in the very beginning, the, the mask and becoming more substantial when we can, until we have the right face to be able to see God, that's somewhat that theosis process, that divinization process. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think, I mean, in the end of Till We Have Faces too, it's like, you two shall be psyche. That like line again, it's just like, we all, it's, it's basically like, you two will be a god. You will be a goddess uh, brought into God, really. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's like a huge theme in here. Oh, you also get, now that you say that, I never thought of it this way, but you got Orwell and you've got Psyche that somewhat had different trajectories on their time on earth. One was becoming more beautiful. One seemed to be becoming more ugly potentially. And then obviously was redeemed, but he's big on in mere Christianity, heavenly and hellish creatures. So the little actions you make set you on a trajectory of either becoming a heavenly creature or a hellish type creature. And so maybe yeah. you somewhat see that in Orwell's life. Yes, exactly. And then the grace is brought in. Yeah. Yes. And then you see really, I think the power of grace too. It's almost like till we have faces is this like, it's like Lewis is so like mere Christianity, right? Is like analytic knowledge. And then the story is like the experience, like you see it played out. It's not yes. just like he tells you, Oh, like you will become a hellish creature through these ways. It's like, you see how this happens and like this way that makes it so real to you. It's all, yeah. I mean, it's almost like this book is a case study in itself for Lewis's other works. Uh, and you yeah. sympathize as, as she becomes potentially more of a hellish creature. Like I'm reading this thinking, Oh, I can see how all of these little steps are leading to how she's becoming. Yes. Yes, exactly. Thankful. Thankfully, grace steps in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is Lewis's big grace work, to be honest. I mean, you see it sort of in the other ones in in The Great Divorce, obviously. Um, and in, in The Chronicles of Narnia, I would say, too. But I think mostly you see it like so profoundly until we have faces. Yes. All right. So getting a bit away from the book and bringing this more to a close here, I always like whenever I'm chatting with people who are on a spiritual journey and have read so many different books, I'm curious, a non-Lewis book from you that has been a very influential in your journey. I feel like I'm almost cheating saying this, but Lord of the Rings was like, because <laughs> <laughs> it's like Lewis Tolkien, like so similar. Um, I think Lord of the Rings, though, is like just incredible. So I read this. I took this class in college and it was called Lewis Tolkien and the Inklings, um, like one of the best classes I've ever taken. But we read all of Lord of the Rings and it was just like talking. I mean, I just saw like the beauty and friendship in the spiritual journey, the spiritual journey as an adventure, um, just like all these different things like priest, prophet, king. You see that in, um, in Tolkien and it's just beautiful. I would also say if I can say three. Uh, another is Tolkien's The Silmarillion and I haven't read this book in its entirety it's like huge but I would say that the first part of it it's just like beauty I mean it's just like one of the best books I've ever written it's just so beautiful and captivating and the more you read it it's just like wow um and for a more I would say philosophical book I don't know it's so hard because I feel like a lot of my faith journey has been like I mean, people have told me things or I've learned things in class, but then it's like I read it in a fiction story and it like comes to life. Uh, and that's like what really impacts me. I would say St. Augustine's Confessions. So every student at Villanova has to read St. Augustine's Confessions um, in our freshman, one of our freshman Augustine culture seminar classes and at least the first nine books. And I would say that that was the first like sort of saint autobiography that I had read and or just like anything really about a saint like that profoundly. And it was just like, it was really beautiful. I mean, you just see grace also so well. And it was like, wow, like saints were sinners. Um, yes. And now they're saints. Yeah. I love that you said Lord of the Rings because I am officially going through them. I just finished The Hobbit and I'm 
a quarter of the way through the Fellowship of the Ring. This is so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited. I'm literally thinking to myself, man, now I want to interview her for even the Word Out of Tolkien podcast. But I'm like, oh, I want to hear all of these different aspects with the Lord of the Rings because that's what I've been asking myself as I read this. What Christian themes are coming through this? Because Tolkien was very devout. And so how are we seeing this work its way through here? And it's it's more subtle than, at least in my experience, than the Chronicles of Narnia. There it's pretty obvious, like Aslan's this character, and you can you can just see the blatant themes where Tolkien, it's just wow. I mean, people can go through that, and I've talked to people and they have no idea that there's Christian undertones throughout this whole thing. Yes. Yeah. It's it's crazy how popular these books are too. Like, I mean, Lewis is yes. really popular too, but Tolkien, like the Lord of the Rings movies is just like, they're, I mean, they're incredible and it's all, they're incredible with like people who are Catholic and Christian and who are not. And it's yes. like these same themes, but they're just like, it's the same like creation, redemption, like life story. It just in these books is incredible. But yeah, I think his subtlety, I love Lewis for his like, you know, I mean, he just like tells you how it is sort of thing. Um, but Lewis, Tolkien is like definitely more, more subtle, but also I would add too with Till We Have Faces, like a lot of people don't really like Till We Have Faces, um, when they read it and it's, it, people just say it's not like the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I would say that is because part of the reason why is because it is very subtle. Like you see these things and, and, but you just like don't see them until you read it again or until you read it with like this lens of like Lewis talking about distorted love and these different things. Uh, but it is like, I would say it's probably his most subtle book. All right. Final question. What's next? So you, you wrote your thesis here, you graduated. <laughs> what are the next steps? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll be going to Notre Dame in the fall. Um, <laughs> I knew that. So which is why I had to ask this. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great school. I've been told. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, so you know, it's, it's, it's all right. Yeah, no, so I'm going, in, I'm going to be studying um, developmental psychology, which is interesting. I mean, this book is such a psychological book, and Lewis is so, like, theological and philosophical and psychological, like, very much sort of grounded in, um, you know, the human experience and, and all these ideas as well. But, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to, you know, just keep going with, like, my intellectual journey and, you know, reading theological books and things like that. But I think I really want my... Um, I guess the focus of my life to take more of like a personal, um, you know, sort of rooted in psychology and teaching and, and that sort of thing. So I'm excited. Well, you will have a great foundation of human experiences, human beings through C.S. Lewis. Like I have found as I've read psychology books that he just understood the human condition. Well, what drives us, what makes us tick, why we do what we do, at least at a surface level. He's, he's an interesting human being. I will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's an amazing man. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was incredible having you on. I know the listeners are going to very much enjoy this. And this has made this has made David and my job a lot easier as we go through this. Because even if we screw up going through this, they they can listen to this and get a great summary of it all. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. You know, I love till we have faces and it's like amazing to get another person who's read it and who understands (laughs) it and who can like talk about it. So Oh, yeah, now you're going to have a lot of people who are going to be uh, very familiar with this book. I'm so excited that you guys are doing this. Yeah, it's amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and we'll see you again next week when we'll be going further up and further in. <laughs>